motivations, the reason you do the things you do, you do them because of the promise of reward that comes with the action that you are about to do. You don't live on expectations. You live on promises. And the book of Joshua is about God's unfailing presence to be with his people and to fulfill his promise to give them a land, which we have said for the church today is not just a geographic. In fact, it's not a geographic piece of land. Rather, it is the land of your hearts, which we are taking possession of more and more by the power of the Holy Spirit. Through the work of Jesus Christ, as he helps us to grow in holiness. All of this is through Christ's work. All of this is because of what he has done for us. So in just a minute, we're going to read Joshua chapter 22. But first, I want to tell you a story. It was a Tuesday. It was a Tuesday when I finally realized the difference between Methodists and Presbyterians and Baptists and Bible Church, Assemblies of God, and Church of God. It was a Tuesday. It was a moment in my life when the penny dropped. And this moment came to be not because of just what happened in the previous 30 seconds, but it was a course on American church history where I began to understand more and more the differences in the denominationalism in the United States today. And the penny dropped. The other shoe fell. And I realized the difference. I realized that the difference was me. Me. It was me. Because I grew up in a church where we were right. And they were wrong. I grew up in a church where debate was welcomed as long as you agreed with the sphere of our opinions. I grew up in a church where it is fine to discuss theological matters as long as finally you came to your senses and you agreed with what we had to say. The difference was me. Joshua chapter 22 might well be one of my favorite stories in the Bible. It's a strange, weird, crazy, weird story about confrontation within the people of God and listening. Something very hard sometimes for me to do. And I imagine it's not untrue in your own life. Friends, please hear me. If this is the difference between denominations, you, it's us. Now, there are serious theological differences. The problem begins with me. The problem begins with you. If there are differences amongst us denominationally, don't you think there are differences among us, of course, in religions? Yes, and serious differences upon which we would stake our life because the finished work of Jesus Christ is the only way to salvation. When I was a chaplain at Princeton, I office next door to Sohaib Sultan, who was the one 
who wrote the Quran for dummies. He's a great friend to this day. He's Muslim. On the other side of me was a man named Vineet Chandler, who was the Hindu chaplain at Princeton. Fantastic guy, dear friend. Both of these gentlemen did not know Christ and would therefore eternally be separated from him in a place the Bible very clearly speaks of called hell. Serious differences. But those two guys taught me how to listen and to know precisely what we disagreed about. And then I moved to Oklahoma. And there are so many denominations and everybody is angry at each other. And everybody thinks they have it right. And is it any wonder why your neighbors who don't go to church think it's not really worth my time? Because listen to how much they bicker. If they bicker amongst each other like that, why do I need to go on Sunday? The difference, friends, is me. And if that's true within world religions, it's true within denominations, don't you think it's true within your own family? Do you have a listening problem? Do you have a confrontation problem in your own family? It's very easy to not want to confront today. You can be distracted by a thousand things, which is what makes worship sometimes so difficult for us existentially. It's not because the songs are hard to sing, although they might be. It's not because the minister is hard to listen to, although I might be. It's because you're not used to being still. You're constantly distracted, constantly barraged by entertainment. And here we're called to listen to the Lord speak to his people and us to respond in repentance. It's true for husbands and wives. Just this week, Lauren has reminded me of my great listening skills. I don't listen. I'm going to give you a principle out of the passage that we're going to read. I'm going to give you two, two very simple things to practice. The principle is this. Unity around the gospel is the prerequisite for individual and corporate renewal. Unity around the gospel of Jesus Christ is the prerequisite. It is the beginning point for individual and corporate renewal. And then we're going to talk about confrontation, and we're going to talk about listening together. So let me read this passage for us. It's a long passage. It's a weird passage. Some of you have never read this passage before, and that is okay. And others of you, it's been years. But please give your attention to God's word. The context is that the eastern tribes have just helped the western tribes. I'm not talking about Native Americans. I'm talking about the people of Israel. The people of Israel have fought to win the land of Canaan. And there was a promise given to them at the very beginning of the book of Joshua, where Joshua said to Gad, Manasseh, and the half, Gad, Reuben, and the half tribe of Manasseh, help your brothers get the land of Canaan, and then you can go back to the eastern side of the Jordan River and take possession of your land. But you can't take possession of your land until you fight together with your brothers for theirs on the western side of the Jordan. Now Israel has taken possession of the western lands. And Joshua is giving Israel permission for those who belong in Reuben, Gad, the half-tribe of Manasseh, to go back and take possession of their land on the eastern side of the Jordan. And something amazing happens. Listen to God's word, please. At the time, Joshua summoned the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh. And he said to them, You have kept all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you. 
and have obeyed my voice in all that I commanded you. You have not forsaken your brothers these many days down to this day, but have been careful to keep the charge of the Lord your God. And now the Lord your God has given rest to your brothers as he promised them. Therefore, turn and go to your tents in the land where your possession lies. That's the east side of the Jordan, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you on the other side of the Jordan. Only be very careful to observe the commandment and the law that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you to love the Lord your God and to walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments and to cling to him and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. So Joshua blessed them and sent them away, and they went to their tents. Now to the one half of the tribe of Manasseh, Moses had given a possession in Bashan, but to the other half, Joshua had given a possession beside their brothers in the land west of the Jordan. And when Joshua sent them away to their homes and blessed them, he said to them, Go back to your tents with much wealth and with very much livestock, with silver, gold, bronze, iron, and with much clothing. Divide the spoil of your enemies with your brothers. So the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh returned home, parting from the people of Israel at Shiloh, which is in the land of Canaan, to go to the land of Gilead, to their own land, which they had possessed themselves by command of the Lord through Moses. And when they came to the region of the Jordan that is in the land of Canaan, the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh built there an altar by the Jordan, an altar of imposing size. And the people of Israel heard it and said, Behold, the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh have built the altar at the front of the land of Canaan in the region about the Jordan, on the other side that belongs to the people of Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, the whole assembly of the people of Israel gathered at Shiloh to make war against them. And then the people of Israel sent the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh in the land of Gilead Phinehas, the son of Eleazar the priest, and with him ten chiefs, run, one from each of the tribal families of Israel, every one of them the head of a family among the clans of Israel. And it came to the people of Reuben, the people of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh in the land of Gilead, and they said to them, Thus says the whole congregation of the Lord, What is this breach of faith that you have committed against the God of Israel and turning away this day from following the Lord by building yourselves an altar this day in rebellion against the Lord? Have we not had enough of the sin at Peor from which even yet we have not cleansed ourselves, and for which there came a plague upon the congregation of the Lord that you too must turn away this day from following the Lord? And if you two rebel against the Lord today, then tomorrow he will be angry with the whole congregation of Israel. But now if the land of your possession is unclean, pass over into the Lord's land where the Lord's tabernacle stands and take for yourselves a possession among us. Only do not rebel against the Lord or make us rebels by building for yourselves an altar other than the altar of the Lord our God. Did not Achan, the son of Zerah, break faith in the matter of devoted things? And wrath fell upon all the congregation of Israel? And did he not perish alone for his iniquity? Then the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh said to the heads of the families of Israel, The mighty one, God the Lord, the mighty one, God the Lord, 
He knows. And let Israel itself know it. If it was in rebellion or in breach of faith against the Lord, do not spare us for building an altar to turn away from following the Lord. Or if we did so to offer burnt offerings or grain offerings or peace offerings on it, may the Lord himself take vengeance. But no, we did it from fear that in time to come, your children might say to our children, what have you to do with the Lord, the God of Israel? For the Lord has made the Jordan a boundary between us and you, the people of Reuben and the people of Gad. You have no portion in the Lord. So your children might make our children cease to worship the Lord. And therefore we said, let us build now an altar, not for burnt offering or for sacrifice, but to be a witness between us and you, between our generations after us, that we do perform the service of the Lord in his presence with our burnt offerings and sacrifices and peace offerings. So your children will not say to our children in time to come, you have no portion in the Lord. And we thought if this should be said to us or to our descendants in time to come, we should say, behold, the copy of the altar of the Lord which our fathers made, not for burnt offerings nor for sacrifice, but to be a witness between us and you. Far be it from us that we should rebel against the Lord and turn away this day from following the Lord by building an altar for burnt offering, grain offering, or sacrifice other than the altar of the Lord our God that stands before his tabernacle. When Phinehas the priest and the chiefs of the congregation, the heads of the families of Israel who were with them, heard the words that the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the people of Manasseh spoke, it was good in their eyes. And Phinehas the son of Eleazar the priest said to the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the people of Manasseh, Today we know that the Lord is in our midst because you have not committed this breach of faith against the Lord. Now you have delivered the people of Israel from the hand of the Lord. Then Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the priest, and the chiefs returned from the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the land of Gilead to the land of Canaan, to the people of Israel, and brought back word to them. And report, the report was good in their eyes. And the people of Israel blessed God and spoke no more of making war against them to destroy the land where the people of Reuben and the people of Gad were settled. The people of Reuben and the people of Gad called the, witness, the altar witness, for they said, it is a witness between us that the Lord is God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, would you take the story, an amazing story in Joshua 22 about a conflict. And would you massage our hearts and help us to see the beauty of your work for your people and bringing us together. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, this is a long story that I just read to you, no doubt. I'm going to retell the story, give you the principle, and I'm going to talk about the two things that the readers of Joshua at that time needed to know and learn, and so do you and so do me. Here's the principle. Unity is the prerequisite for renewal. The last three chapters of the book of Joshua are about assembling together. It says in Joshua 22.1, 23.1, and 24.2 that Joshua gathered the people together or he summoned them together. He summoned them for unity around the covenant. In 23, he summoned them together for fidelity to the covenant based on their history. And in 24, he summons them around renewal 
to the covenant, and they take vows to, make, to commit themselves to the Lord. In 22, we have this interesting story that goes skipped in our Bibles all the time when we read through it. It's a story of when the eastern tribes leave Israel after they've conquered the majority of Canaan, and they go back on the eastern side of the Jordan to take possession of the land. And when they do that, they know that there is a mighty and strong river that separates them called the Jordan River. And not only is this, as we talked about earlier, kind of a spiritual symbol of division, right? Baal, the god of rivers. But it's also a physical boundary between the western tribes and the eastern tribes. So the eastern tribes, fully committed to the Lord, said, we are going to build an altar on the western side of the Jordan for the eastern tribes to see. I'm sorry, on the eastern side of the Jordan for the western tribes to see. And we're going to make it big of imposing size, it said in the text, so that our children and their children can never say that we're not family, that we're not committed to the one true God. Because one day this river is going to separate us and there will be separate civilizations and villages and towns on either side of the river and they will forget that we are part of the same family. Now, the only altar that could ever be built was the altar in the, temple, in the tabernacle of the Lord God. Only on one altar can you sacrifice before the God of Israel. And that tabernacle resided in Shiloh at the time. Shiloh was a town northwest of Jerusalem, 30 miles or so from the Jordan River. One altar. So when these guys build a second altar, it's no... Not confusing to wonder that the Western tribes are looking at the Eastern tribes and saying, I think we have here ourselves an altercation. Because there's two altars. And this shouldn't be. And so Israel in the West, they gather all the mighty men in Shiloh. It's like all of us got together and we got our swords and we got our axes and we had just spent years in war. Finally, there's rest. There's families that are growing, if you know what I mean. There's a lot of partying and celebrating. It's great. And then all of a sudden, no, no, get to Shiloh because they are heretics. And they're building altars. So all the mighty men come out of their houses and they go to Shiloh and they get ready for war. And before they go over there, they send Phineas, who is the baddest dude that you would ever meet. He, back in Numbers chapter 25, at the sin of Peor, when Israel was marrying with Moabite women, he killed people who were going against the Lord. In fact, in one very graphic story, it says he actually stabbed a man and a woman at the same time who were committing an abomination before the Lord. A prince... And a Moabite princess. So we're going to get Phineas because nobody messes with him. And he's going to take one of each of the heads of the tribes and he's going to march over to the eastern boundary and he's going to tell them, take that altar down or we're coming after you. And so they go and they go right up and they confront their brothers. And they say to them, friends, do not make a pagan image to the Lord. 
Obey what Moses called you to do and obey what Joshua asks of us. And you can imagine the people on the eastern tribes, right? They're going away from the 10 tribes. They're going and they're taking the nine and a half tribes. They're, they're setting up their land and their homes and they're over here on this side of the Jordan. And you can imagine when they see Phinehas riding up with his 10 dudes and their swords and they mean business and they're like making this altar and they're like, oh, this is not what you think is happening. And after they hear Phinehas confront them to their face, The Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half tribe of Manasseh say, Oh, brother, mighty is the Lord. Mighty is the Lord. If we are committing an abomination, we deserve to die. We deserve to be the first to have our blood shed. We should die. But this is not what we're doing. We are concerned for the posterity of the gospel. We are concerned for the posterity of the truth of the one true God across this very big Jordan River. That your children one day will say to our children, you're on the other side of the river. This is the promised land. You have no right to be with us. That would shame the one true God because he gave his servant Moses the command to tell us to take possession on this side of the Jordan. Now, do you see the story? Do you see the tension? All right, let's think about it together. There are, two, there are two very practical things that you are confronted with in the story. One is the necessity of confrontation. Something very hard for many of us to do. We know how to confront in anger very directly and we know how to flee confrontation altogether. There's a story in Texas of a, of a mayor who in a city council meeting was very direct in his confrontation. And he called the police chief out in the meeting and said, we have given you these privileges to bring on these people and you have not done it. And he did it in such a way that the police chief immediately resigned because he was confronted in such a direct way and it offended him so greatly. There are ways to confront people. Sometimes it needs to be very direct, but you can be so direct, as in this story, that you aren't sensitive to the way that it's received. And there's other times when you know that you need to confront people, but you just never get around to doing it because if you ignore it, somebody else will do it or it'll just go away. Do you know what I'm talking about? Listen, the best times in our marriage and Lauren's in my marriage. There have been times when she has confronted me or I've confronted her about an issue. And the reason why she can confront me is because I know she loves me. And she says some pretty hard stuff. And it's all true. But there's trust there. And I listen to what she has to say because I trust her. And sometimes in the church, it is the picture for the people who are not Christians of the kingdom of God. And the way that you love me and that I love you and that you love each other, it is a picture to the watching world of the way we are to help confront each other in love about our sin. So that if there is somebody who even apparently seems to be in sin, it is a good and right thing for not just the session or the elders of that church to go and confront them. Don't wait for that. 
for you to go to confront them. In fact, Matthew 18 charges you, not to you, to go to them individually and to confront them and say, listen, what do you say to somebody when you confront them? Say, hey, we've been friends for a while and we're members of the same church and I, I, I love you and I care for you, but I, I've, seen, I've seen this kind of stuff go on. Like, I've seen you do this and it appears, it appears like you're walking outside the bounds of what scripture commands us to do. And it may just be my, it may just be my bad eyesight, honestly. But I love you, brother. I love you, sister. Can you help me understand why you're doing that? To which they may give a perfectly legitimate reason. No problem. Or they may say, you are right. Thank you for loving me. See, one of the problems in the evangelical church today is a problem called anonymity, where you don't know each other. And we're a church of a couple hundred people. And even anonymity can set in for us. And so you create what are called community groups, where you have people that know each other, love each other, are praying for each other. Where you can be able, out of these community groups, to be able to honestly confront each other with sin and say, listen, this may not be, this may not be legitimate but I feel like I need to talk to you about it. Oh, that would be beautiful. And the way that you know that you're walking with Jesus is when people do that to you, you say, oh, I need to be confronted on a thousand things. Thank you for loving me. And this is really what's going on here, not in a self-justifying way, but in a truthful way. Or, you know, thank you. I do need to grow in repentance in that area. Would you pray for me in this? That would be awesome, wouldn't it? To be a church that could love each other and confront each other and not be defensive. Notice that in the confrontation between the Western and the Eastern tribes at Gilead, notice immediately what the Eastern tribes, the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, remember they were the ones who they just gave up their lands, left their families, and just went to war for years for the sake of their Western brothers. And they're the ones who sacrificed a lot. And now they go back to the eastern side of the Jordan, and it would be very easy for them to say, would you stop getting mad at me? I just gave five years of my life to you. But they don't. The first thing they do is they confess a creed. Mighty is the Lord, the mighty one, the Lord. The one true God is our God. Which tells you that the first thing they thought about in the confrontation was not their response, but was the gospel. We want the gospel to be central in our relationships together. So that when they were confronted, they didn't get defensive. The first thing they said is, the Lord's word is true, and we want him to be glorified. If this rebuke is true and right and clear, we want to repent. And in this case, what's interesting about it is that it was actually a misunderstanding. The appearances were not what they seemed from the Western tribes. This is why the story is probably one of my favorite stories, because we have through the Bible all kinds of stories where the one who is the aggressor is right, right? Paul was right about Peter in Galatians 2 when Peter pulled away from the Gentiles so that the Jews wouldn't think that he was interacting with the sinners. Paul was right 
In Galatians 6, 1, it says, you who are spiritual, you should restore one another in a spirit of meekness, yes, be, yet be careful lest you also be tempted. But here in Joshua 22, you have an example that's just real life. Like there is a misunderstanding. And when the eastern tribes explain to the western brothers, we are doing this for the sake of our children. We're not, we're, this is not a live altar. It's just a monument like the Jordan stones that we built together to remind your children and ours that there is one altar in Israel. It is the altar of the tabernacle and later of the temple and later of Jesus himself who is the sacrificial lamb. And it's amazing that the eastern tribes did not get defensive and the western tribes, what did they do? They had men who had left their families and gathered in Shiloh armed for war. There's a thing sociologists call a sunk cost theory. It's an economic theory that means once you spend money or you, go, you spend energy toward one direction, even when you realize that direction is wrong, you will still carry it out because you've already exerted so much energy in one direction. The sunk cost theory happens all the time. And yet these men who are bound for a war, they lower their pride. And they listen to the eastern tribes explain this. And they hearken back to Genesis chapter 1 when they talk about the unity of God's people. And they say, Tov. It was good in their eyes. This is good. And they take all their resources and all those men march back to Shiloh. And they tell the people in Shiloh, listen, they are building this altar as a memorial for us and our children, and them and their children, that we will be united as a people. Confrontation is one of the hardest things for us to do in the body of Christ. Because we afford ourselves a thousand distractions to really loving each other. Some of you have become so immersed in your relationships online. And one of the reasons why that's so appealing to us, teenagers especially, please hear me, is because there's so little room for confrontation online or where there is confrontation, you can be very direct and sinful and brash and bold about it in a way that you would never be face to face. But when you recognize that your relationships in real life, all the relationships are real life, by the way, but the physical relationships in front of you are worthy of confrontation, you must learn how to love each other and come to each other in love. That is the role of the church for us as a body when we become members. We submit ourselves to the governing authorities of the church, just as I and them submission to the regional group of pastors called a presbytery. We submit ourselves to each other because people need to help us see our sin. And even even when they confront us, and it's not because of a sin, it should make you sing. The other day, I loved it. It made my day. A man came up to me and said, would you mind if I asked you a question? Sure. Do you know that if you were to die today, that you would be in heaven? Or do you think that's something that you're still working on? It was the old D. James Kennedy question to me. And I stood up and I hugged him. I said, I'm going to be in heaven because Jesus finished the work for me. And I'm a minister in town. And I'm so thankful that you asked that question. That's awesome. I could have said, dude, take your track somewhere else. 
That's so 1980s. But he, like, he, was, he was, it was honest. It was, it was wonderful. It was beautiful. And when we confront each other about sin, when it's appropriate, I'm not trying to make you all bounty hunters, when it's appropriate, it's a beautiful thing to see happen. But what's required to do that well is to listen. To listen. Those of you who are in corporate, the corporate world, you know this. There's a thing called deep listening. It's all the rave. Deep listening. Hear what your colleagues are saying to you. It's a very biblical idea. The best person to teach me about deep listening in the last month is my daughter, Annie, who going to school one day, just this week, actually, said to mom, hey, mom, daddy promised last night that he would wrestle with us, but then he got on his phone, and I think he forgot. So I'm grounded from my phone for a week (laughs) because I was so distracted by emails from you. (laughs) We get easily distracted. It is important to listen. And practically speaking, sometimes that means you turn your phone off. Phones are not bad, very useful. But anything can become an idol, even great things. Don't let the use of technology affect your listening ability. And yes, I need to be sitting in the pew here in the same sermon. This story is amazing because it is a confrontation of brothers. When one person misunderstood what the other was doing, one didn't get defensive but rejoiced that they had the boldness and the courage to confront them. And the other listened to their response, even though they had amassed tremendous amount of energy toward the confrontation. And they turned and went the other direction. It's beautiful. It reminds us, of course, of the one who is the true Israelite, Jesus Christ, who at the Garden of Gethsemane had a, not an altercation, but he had a confrontation. Because Jesus himself sweat drops of blood because he did not want to go to the cross. And in the midst of hematopoiesis, which is the medical term for sweating drops of blood, he said, Father, if there's any other way, please let that be possible. And his father confronted him and said, Jesus, there's no other way. You must go to the cross. And Jesus listened. And in his listening, he went to the death to forgive us of our sins and to cover us with his righteousness before the Father so that we now, out of the power of what Jesus has done for us, might become a picture of the new Israel in the church, the people of God. And we might be for the watching world, little Christs, Christians, in the best use of the term, not the derogatory use of the term that they called them Christians in the early church but we might be the best little Christs in the world, covered in his righteousness, mutually edifying each other, listening well. And friends, that starts with you because it starts with me. And one of the most joyful days of my week is on Wednesday morning when I gather with 
ministers in this town. There were just a few of us when I came here. Now there's a dozen. And we pray every Wednesday morning. Pastors all over this town, different denominations. Many of us grew up in the same denomination. Many of you know I did not grow up Presbyterian. But there are all kinds of pastors there. And there are pretty significant differences in the way that churches are governed, in the way that uh, what we believe about the nature of salvation. But we all profess the Nicene Creed together. And we pray together. And we've learned to listen to each other. And to pray for our churches while churches in town are transitioning between pastors. We pray for them. We've even prayed from the pulpit for these guys. It's not because we're better than them. No, it's because we want them to pray for us. We need each other. The battle today is not between Christians and Christians. It's between a world who rejects the work of Jesus and has, wants nothing to do with him and those of us who know that we have no righteousness of ourselves, but only the righteousness of Christ. So, because Christ was the good listener for us at the cross, because he went, took upon himself all of our altercations and our pagan, legitimate pagan worship, he took upon my sin. He took upon your sin. He took upon all of our sin. And he died in the greatest confrontation of the world, the confrontation of goodness with evil and good one. Jesus rose from the dead three days later so that when you're in your kitchen this week, you might put down your phones and listen to your bride, men, your friend, college students, your husband, wives, your parents, kiddos, and we might be people who love each other enough to confront. Mm, it'd be a different kind of church. One that's built on honesty and integrity and loyalty to the finished work of Jesus who unifies us together. That is our hope. So if you want real spiritual renewal, friends, it begins with unity together. You cannot have individual renewal without also having corporate unity. It is the prerequisite for true renewal in the church today. And that is what Tulsa, Owasso, all of Northeast Oklahoma so desperately needs because we are quickly running into a world where we, Christianity is not the majority faith. Agnosticism is. People who don't know what they believe, nor do they care. Let's do it together. Because we have no righteousness of our own. We have the righteousness of Jesus. And we can look at the story of the altarcation. And we can remember to be bold in our confrontation and also humble in our listening. Because when you cry out to Christ, he hears you and he loves you. And the sign of his love is he confronts, confronts you with conviction. Do not harden your hearts. Repent as we prepare to come to the table. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would help us to be a people where confrontation was not a scary thing. And in order to do that, Father, help us to be friends. Help us to build trust together. Help us to listen well to each other. Thank you, Lord Christ, that your finished work on the cross for us is infinitely practical and that your righteousness covers us. So help us as your people to lower our pride 
and to respond in humility and gentleness toward others. And we pray these things for your glory's sake, for mighty is the Lord, the mighty one are you. Pray these things in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, amen.